It's always to uh, be with you here as we worship the Lord and receive His Word together. Let's commit this time to the Lord. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and gracious Redeemer. In Jesus' name, amen. Sometimes life uh, throws up moments at you that make you sit up and wonder, you know, wow, this is something new. This is, has never happened to me before. Well, something incredibly profound happened to me over a week ago. Uh, this was when my beloved Liverpool was playing against Manchester City in a top-of-the-table clash. It was at 4 a.m. in the morning on Friday morning, a very early morning, and uh, I, I didn't uh, actually plan to uh, watch it. it was, uh, I had a late night, and uh, obviously I had work in the morning, so you know, I, went, I didn't set the alarm, just go to sleep. But that night, I, I dreamed about the match. Uh, in the dream, to my dismay, Manchester City was leading Liverpool 1-0. Uh, but then to my relief and astonishment and excitement, Liverpool scored the equaliser in my dream, making it 1-1. It was at that moment that I suddenly woke up. Uh, I didn't know the time, so I said, why not switch on the TV and check out what's going on? And, and, and to my astonishment, when I switched on the television, Liverpool had just equalised moments before, 1-1. Right? So I, I said to myself, whoa. I'm so connected to my team that whatever happened in the real world uh, transmitted into my dream world. You know, it was, it was a profound moment as a Liverpool fan. Giamlan, uh, profound moment as a Liverpool fan. Manatao, a few minutes later, Manchester City scored the second goal, and I spent the next 20 minutes agonising as Liverpool tried to uh, equalized but failed to do so. They lost the match 2-1. Uh, so my pleasant dreaming had turned into a waking nightmare, right? I mean, it would have been better if I just uh, remained sleeping and hopefully missed all that agony, right? But even up to that point, um, even if I would have stayed in bed and dreamed, I would have eventually need to wake up to reality, right? I mean, uh, you know, even though Liverpool at that point was on a record-breaking, unbeaten run, eventually... Reality hits home with a vengeance. The people at the time of Jesus also needed a reality check as far as their expectations went. They were looking for a coming of a deliverer prophet, a messianic king, according to what their scriptural interpretations and uh, religious leaders told them. Now, at the time of Jesus, there were a variety of expectations of what this prophet and all messianic king would actually bring. It was common to have a nationalistic and a political view that the one whom God sends will set up an earthly kingdom, purge the land of all their foreign enemies, and usher in a period of renewed prosperity for the nation of Israel. So it was a very natural expectation from an earthly point of view one that meets national aspirations for justice to be done against their foreign enemies, social economic hopes for a better tomorrow, and perhaps religious vindication that God has renewed uh, His favour on the people of Israel above and against their, uh, you know, their enemies and the foreigners around them. 
Salvation for them was a salvation from enemies' hunger and injustice. And if we were in their shoes, it would have been likely that these expectations would have been ours as well. And in, their people, in the people's encounter with Jesus, these expectations were about to undergo a drastic reality check. Now, of, of course, often we use this term reality check in a negative sense, meaning you had high hopes or high expectations only to be disappointed, or at least you had to lower your expectations. But this was not exactly the case with Jesus. Yes, expectations had to be changed, and yes, there would be disappointments for those who had only earthly concerns and interests. But to those who were open to what God was doing, Jesus offered a far greater reality than anyone had then imagined. The problem was not that all these expectations from an earthly point of view were inherently wrong. The problem was that these were not big enough to include God's will. They were not long-lasting enough to include God's plan, and they certainly had no power no power to bring life. Life in all its beauty and fullness. He has no power to bring in the life that God desires in relationship with his people. These expectations, even for the good things such as justice, economic well-being, and political freedom, cannot give true everlasting life. Beliefs Expectations and ambitions that are not governed by God's view and God's plan and God's power cannot give life. They drain life away from us. They are not life-giving, they are life-sapping. Look at how many multimillionaires who live in regret at the end of their lives. How many celebrity superstars who undergo identity crisis and depression? How many political alliances that break up after electoral victory? How many who all their lives strive to win their hopes and ambitions only to find that they have lost their families and that they have left behind a wreckage of other people's lives who got in the way? For the Gospel of John, the only reality that lasts, the only reality that is life-giving with never-ending abundance and fullness is the reality of Jesus Christ, the bread of life. And to get this message across, John used extremely stark contrast throughout the Gospel, life versus death, light versus darkness, truth versus lies or falsehood, God versus the devil, the spirit versus the flesh. And only by living on the flesh and blood reality of Jesus can we receive what is of God, what is true, what is life that never ends. And so in terms of application, we want to outline three uh, major contrasts that the scripture passage today points us to and reflect on the need to transition from one reality to the other. First is working for food versus working for food that, working for food that spoils versus working for food that lasts. Second is choosing between the 
flesh and blood reality of our earthly existence versus embracing the flesh and blood reality of Christ. Lastly, the flesh versus the spirit, which is our way of summing up the previous two points. So first, working for food that would last. We're going to start with John chapter 6, uh, verse 25. Uh, sorry, with reads, When they found him on the other side of the lake, they asked him, Rabbi, uh, when did you get here? Now, up to this point, by, by the time we reach to this point of the passage, the people had seen Jesus performing the miracle of the five, uh, feeding the 5,000. Uh, this was the first half of uh, John chapter 6. And Jesus did that with five loaves of bread and two small fish. Uh, by this time, Jesus also had a reputation uh, of being a miracle healer and so attracted a large crowd. After the feeding of the 5,000, Jesus had moved to the other side of the lake with his disciples. And, you know, there's a passage there that talks about the miracle of walking on the water. You can check that out, uh, the first half of uh, John chapter 6. And so now the, the people were trying to catch up with him and his disciples. And we move on to verse 26. Jesus answered, very truly, I tell you, you are looking for me not because you saw the signs I performed, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. Do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him, God the Father has placed his seal of approval. A few, down, a few verses down the chapter, Jesus clarified that the food that endures actually pointed to himself. And this is in verse 35. Uh, then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will, not, will never go hungry. Whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. The people experienced the miracles of Jesus, but they were still trapped by their earthly perspectives and expectations. Their idea of what the Messiah or God's King would do was to secure them and make sure you know, that the supply of food and other needs were met. Now, these, of course, these expectations were not wrong in and of themselves, but they fall far short of the eternal life that God desires for his people. Essentially, Jesus was saying to them, don't come to me, don't just come to me for your earthly needs, come to me for what will last you throughout eternity. The food that we eat and the life that we have from an earthly perspective are only temporal. They will not last. It will come to an end. But the life that Jesus gives us goes on without ending. The earthly part of our existence, physical, emotional, psychological needs are an important part of us. Jesus is not denying that or rejecting this. This is, after all, how God created us. But because of sin, we have lost the vital connection with God that has a spiritual or heavenly dimension to our existence. Without this vital connection with God, there eventually will only be decay and death. If we just live within our earthly existence or reality, we could have bread miraculously dropped down from heaven for us every day, to feed us. Uh, we could have money mysteriously appearing in our bank accounts every day. 
we could have a life of uninterrupted prosperity, health, and success. I know Chinese New Year is around the corner, so um, you know, never let it be said that we didn't preach on health and wealth. But we could have all of that, right? We could have uninterrupted health, uh, wealth, and success all through our lives. In the end, we will still die in the wilderness without entering into the promised land of life with God. And so Jesus says, don't work for food that spoils, work for food that will endure or last. The next question is this, what is the work? What is the work that God requires or what work must I do to get this food that would last? How do I earn this, essentially? And they're asking what, what we must, this is in uh, verse 28, I believe. Yeah, what must we do to do the works, the works that God requires? Now, to the Jews, the phrase, work that God requires, often refers to the work of the law, the law of Moses, as what we find in the Old Testament. But in addition to that, at a, at a time, around the time of Jesus, there were different interpretations of how one could faithfully express their allegiance to God. Basically, you wanted to know what the boundaries, the boundary markers were that clearly defined the true faithful people of God uh, who will enjoy his salvation and deliverance above and against other unfaithful Jews and foreigners. Uh, so these boundary markers are like, if you go to a stadium and two football teams are, are playing against one another, how do you tell that this particular fan or this particular supporter is of one team or another? Well, you have their jerseys, their, their, you know, the, the badges of their clubs or whatever. These are the identifying boundary markers that point out, yeah, these are faithful fans of whatever team. And so for the Jews at the time of Jesus, they were expecting that God would come back and save them. But the question is, how do we prove, how can we tell which one of us is that true faithful people of God? And so, you know, the question is, what are the boundary markers? How do we identify those that will be saved when God returns? So for some, some, of the, some like the zealots, uh, you must take up arms and fight if necessary for your faith, for your people. For others like the Pharisees, their boundary markers were a very strict compliance to the letter of the law. Others like the Essenes, those who were we, we think that they were living around the Quram caves. Uh, not only strict compliance to the law, but you, you, you have to have very strict ceremonial purity. So you needed to come out from society. You need to stay uh, away from others to ensure this kind of purity. So you have different groups with different interpretations of how you prove yourself faithful to God. So it is possible that the people were asking Jesus this, what is the special thing that we needed to do or we need to do to show or prove our allegiance to God so that we can be counted as his faithful people when God returns to save us. And Jesus answered this way, the work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. Faith, the believing response to Jesus, is now the defining characteristic 
of the renewed people of God. And this is an astonishing claim for Jesus to make. It is neither strict compliance to the letter of the law, it is not perfect ceremonial purity, it is not the willingness to take arms, fight against God's enemies and die in the cause, it is faith. It is faith and allegiance to the one whom God has sent, Jesus the Messiah. And so as disciples, all that we do as a church, as individuals and as a church, is to be an expression of our faith and belief in Jesus. We believe that he is from God. We believe that he died on the cross so that our sins are forgiven. We believe that God raised him from the dead so that we will be raised up from the dead to eternal life as well. When we forgive our enemies, it is an expression of our faith in Jesus who died so that we might be forgiven ourselves. When we love the unlovable, it is an expression of faith in God who loved us while we were yet his enemies. When we hope beyond hope, it is an expression of our faith that just as God raised Jesus from the dead, Jesus will also raise us from the dead. And so we need to remember this and hold on to this faith so that whatever we do as a church will not be based on food that will spoil. The work of God that we do as an expression of our faith must not be based on competing for earthly realities of pride, of prestige, or popularity. How popular we are in church or how prominent we make ourselves to be in church or in the workplace may seem very important to us now. But what is the significance of all of this in 10,000 years' time? In 100,000 years' time, will they actually still matter? But when you give a cup of cold water to the poor and thirsty without the need of recognition because of your faith, God will still remember this in 100,000 years' time. When you help those in need, when you give comfort and support, like what we heard from the Alzheimer's group, support group, God will still remember it in 100,000 years' time. When you prayed and cried before the Lord in private without the need to announce your devotion, God will still remember and honor your faith in 100,000 years' time and for all eternity. Do not work for food that spoils, but for food that will last. Second, choosing to partake of the flesh and blood reality of Jesus. Having faith in Jesus opens, up, uh, opens us up to the spiritual or heavenly reality of life with God in the present life and in the life to come. But what is the substance of this faith? Is it, uh, is it merely intellectual agreement with what the Bible teaches? Is it based on our good works? Or is following Jesus a moral... As, are we just following Jesus as a moral example or teacher of good moral philosophy? 
Now, it is at this point that some of those who had witnessed the miracles of Jesus and followed him started to stumble. They wanted to deal with Jesus based on what they were comfortable with. If Jesus were a prophet as powerful as in the days of Moses, it's something that they could deal with. If Jesus came as a human king <clears throat> in the line of David, it's something that they could, of course, welcome, accept, and live with. After all, the people did grumble and protest against Moses when they were unhappy in the wilderness. Uh, they rebelled against David when the opportunity arose. And so this is part of human reality. In other words, if Jesus came along the lines of a human prophet like Moses and a human king like David, it implied that the people could relive the glory of their past based on strictly a human existence, on an on a earthly reality. Nothing about themselves needed to change drastically. It's like having an earthly reality that they were used to, but with the added benefits of security and prosperity that they wanted to have. They could deal with, they could complain, they could compromise with an earthly Jesus. And you see some of uh, this uh, attitude sometimes in the disciples as well. Uh, you know, they, they argued among themselves, they, they bargained and tried to negotiate with Jesus who was the greatest, right? Who, who would have the privilege when Jesus came into his kingdom to sit at his right and left hand? If, he, if Jesus was only human, you could bargain, you could compromise, you could, you know, try to say, you know, I did this and that for you and I expect something in return. Now, let's be clear, Jesus was fully human, right? He, he lived and breathed as a human. But Jesus also made it clear that his origin was divine. And when he did that, the people started to stumble. If Jesus claims to be divine, one could no longer deal and compromise with him as a human. You either had to obey him completely or reject him as demon-possessed and blasphemous. And if Jesus had both human and divine origins, then the world and the earthly existence as we know it will never be the same again. As scholar N.T. Wright puts it, somehow heaven and earth have come together in and through the person of Jesus. We can now have an earthly existence together with a heavenly reality by faith and belief in Jesus. In other words, if Jesus is truly who he claims to be, then the way we live as humans and the way we relate to God can never be the same again. It's no longer a matter of keeping the law. It is no longer a matter of ceremonial purity. It is not even a matter of being sincere in our own moral philosophy. It is whether we fully embrace everything about Jesus and whether we live in him or not. The very definition of life itself is now based on Jesus. And Jesus says it this way in, in 6 verse 53. Jesus said to them, Very truly I tell you, 
unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink His blood, you have no life. You have no life in you. And so the substance of faith is the very flesh and blood reality of Jesus. What does that mean? Jesus uses symbolic but very radical and even shocking language here for the Jews at that time and for us as well. Biblically speaking, the life of every creature is in the blood. And we see this in Leviticus chapter 17 in the Old Testament context. So the blood of the creature often refers to the life of that creature sacrifice for the atonement and forgiveness of the sins of the people, uh, Old Testament context. And so at minimum, partaking of the flesh and blood reality of Jesus is to fully believe and embrace his sacrificial life and death on the cross as the full, perfect, sufficient atonement for our sins, whereby our sins are forgiven. Jesus is then the once and for all means of salvation that God has given to us. We cannot say, oh, I accept Jesus as a moral example, or I respect Jesus as a good moral teacher, or I want him to save me, but, you know, I don't accept him as Lord or God. Such options are not possible. It's either we fully accept Jesus as all he claims to be, or not at all. One key implication of taking the flesh and blood reality of Jesus is that we should no longer treat our earthly existence or reality in the same way as before. It cannot be the case that we keep on doing what we're comfortable with in how we live our lives, that Jesus is just an added-on measure to guarantee our entry into heaven. No, believing and taking in the life of Jesus means that how we deal with money, the way we conduct ourselves in our families and in the workplace, and how we understand God must completely be overturned and transformed by Jesus. So radical is this required change that Jesus refers to this in John chapter 3 as being born again. It is a new life empowered by the Spirit. This new life no longer operates solely in terms of an earthly perspective. It is one that is both a heavenly reality together with a renewed earthly experience through faith and obedience to Jesus Christ. But here is the troubling part. Even though the life that Jesus offered was so compelling, many of the people who saw Jesus and heard him and seen his and experienced his miracles uh, rejected him. For most part, they did not reject Jesus because they wanted to willfully oppose God. Many of those who rejected Jesus would have considered themselves faithful to God's ways and God's laws as they understood them through the traditions and teachings of their elders. Not many started out wanting to reject Jesus, but because, of their, because their, their perspectives were, were, were earthly bound in that sense, they, they were all worldly concerns and expectations only 
they rejected the life that Jesus offered them. And so with only an earthly perspective, the people thought that they were children of God. Jesus told them they were actually children of the devil. They believed themselves to be living according to God's truth. Jesus knew that they were trapped by the devil's lies. Many of the people who rejected Jesus were longing and waiting for God to send the Messiah, their Savior and Deliverer. When they finally encountered Jesus, they said that he was demon-processed. The religious leaders had so much zeal and respect for God's law. But when they were confronted with the teaching and the authority of Jesus, they became breakers of God's law because they tried to kill him. And those of us who are following the Bible reading plan, you can see some of these responses, right? Uh, and the condition of the people from uh, John chapter 7, uh, verse 8. Those two chapters, if you're following the plan, you would have already encountered these chapters. You have seen some of these exchanges between Jesus and the people. And so we could easily deceive ourselves by doing a lot of church activities and have all the outward trappings of religious faith, but still have not the life that Jesus wants for us. Jesus invites us to come all the way to him. He says to us in this very hour, take and eat and drink my life sacrificially given for you. What would be our response to Jesus this day? And third, to sum up the previous points, we are called this day to live according to the Spirit of Christ. Jesus says in John chapter 3, verse 63, uh, John chapter 6, verse 63, the Spirit gives life, the flesh counts for nothing, the words I've spoken to you, they are full of the Spirit and life. So what we have discussed so far can be summed up as a contrast between the Spirit versus the flesh. And the flesh here meaning a purely earthly or worldly perspective on reality. Only those born of the Spirit and living by the Spirit can enter into life with God that never ends. With the Spirit, all that Jesus did for us through his death on the cross and his rising again from the dead is now made potent and effective for us who believe in Jesus. To put it simply, it is the Spirit that makes this new life in Christ possible for us because without the Spirit, we are effectively spiritually dead. How do we receive the Spirit? By receiving and believing in the words of Jesus. Again, as we saw earlier, it is by faith, by a believing response to Jesus, that we receive the Spirit and life. Once we receive the Spirit of life, we are then instructed by the Spirit in the way and truth of Jesus. And as we go on reading in the Bible reading plan in the Gospel of John, the role of the Spirit will be elaborated further in John chapter 14 and 16 in particular. But for now, it is enough to note that the Spirit makes life in Christ a practical, everyday reality 
for us. The U.S. Uh, uh, Navy elite soldiers, special forces, called the SEALs, have a saying that goes like this. When you come under pressure, you don't rise to the occasion. There's a, there's a mistake. You descend to the level of your training. For these soldiers, they don't just go for a mission and hope for the best. They train day after day under as realistic a scenario as possible so that they are prepared for any eventuality that, that might happen on a mission. If their level of training is substandard or insufficiently rigorous, then they are likely to be killed or captured. From basic skills to complex routines, these professionals train and train repeatedly so that they will have the right approach and response when they are on mission. And this, of course, applies to all human endeavor, from professional skills, music, sports, and so on. It is the same thing with our lives as disciples. The way we respond to setbacks, failures, provocations, trials, and tribulations is an indication of our level of training and experience as disciples. We do not just hope for the best, that we will rise to the occasion when our faith is tested or when we are undergoing struggles because we are going to respond to the level of being trained and instructed in the way of the Lord. If we have not been serious about learning and being trained by the Spirit in the way of Christ in the good times, then we can be quite sure we are not going to we're not going to be able to respond well to the challenges and temptations of life. We're, we are going to fall back into the earthly realities of fears, greed, hatred, anger, or to give in into temptation. Instead, we are to be disciplined and instructed by the Holy Spirit, the everyday re practical realities in life, how we should follow and obey Jesus so that when the trials and pressures do come, we are able to be grounded in the love and security that Christ gives us. We can respond from a position of rest, of abiding in Christ, of being secured in Christ. We can respond from a position of strength in the Lord. How does this training look like? Well, when we hear and experience a gifted musician playing, it's sheer beauty, right? It's a wonderful experience. But we don't see the many hours of practice, the scales, the repetition and repetition, uh, the practice is not fun. Neither it is, it is pretty, right? It's, you know, it sounds a little bit funny. But it is necessary to produce the beauty that we experience when the time comes. Similarly, those who are training for school competitions, swimming, because some of you parents would know, you know, the child has to wake up, we have to wake up 4 a.m., 5 a.m., swim lap after lap while our friends are sleeping. Not fun, but necessary. And so the Spirit disciplines us and instructs us in the way of Christ. Take praying and interceding, for example. You can be sure it's not going to be fun when the Spirit instructs you on how to pray and pray persistently. There will be many times where you feel like giving up, you will feel frustrated, 
you will feel impatient at the extended prayer times that the Spirit makes you go through without apparent success or any results. Not fun, but necessary. If the Spirit teaches us patience and forgiving others, please know that it's not going to be an enjoyable experience. We will feel like giving up. We will feel like shouting at the walls. We will feel that it's unfair to be treated this way and yet having to respond differently. Not fun, but necessary. Author and pastor uh, John Ogbert was sharing about one incident that happened with the late Dallas Willard, a spiritual mentor to many and a highly respected teacher on spiritual formation, Christian spiritual formation. Dallas was once giving a lecture and someone in the audience challenged him and gave him a very hard time. After this particular exchange, the challenger, you know, spoke some last words at him and, you know, Dallas just continued with the lecture without responding. Later on, he was asked, why didn't you respond to the arguments of the challenger? You see, Dallas Willard, Dallas Willard had every capability of shooting down all those arguments, but he did not. And Dallas Willard responded something like this. He says, I am learning the grace or the discipline of not having the last word. He was allowing the spirit to free him from the need to win every last argument. Not fun, but necessary. The more we are trained in the spirit to seek God through his word and through his word, through prayer, through practice of disciplines, of holiness, love, kindness, forgiveness, gradually the way of the Lord becomes more and more part of us, part of our new life in Christ, the bread of life. I'd like to pray for us now and ask us to just bow down and open our hearts to the Lord and If, if you have been working for food that spoils, and you're tired, you're frustrated, you have been damaged along the way, Jesus invites us now to take the food that will last for all eternity and ask you to, in the quietness of your own hearts, to come before the Lord. Jesus also calls us to fully partake of his flesh and blood, to fully embrace us for all that he's claimed to be. And if you have not done so, he calls us now. It's not what you did, never mind about what you did. It's not about what you have gone through or going through now. Jesus says, the flesh, all our earthly existence to this point doesn't matter now. What matters now is the bread of life, Jesus, who offers himself, his life for us. And so I ask you to respond to him in the quietness of your heart. And by a believing response, only by faith, receive all that Jesus gives to you this day.
Father, we come to you burdened by our own sins, our own failures, weighed down by our struggles and our hatred, our fears, our anger, our anxieties. Lord, we tried so hard and journeyed so far with living on food that spoils and things that will not last. But broken as we are, we come to you now, Lord. Our bread of life for food that will last for all eternity. Lord, we don't know how, but by faith we believe. And by faith, we partake of the flesh and blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. In the quietness of our hearts, Lord, we fully embrace the Lord Jesus Christ. Believe in his name and come to your life that you want for us. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.